0: Hey team, welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast, episode number 82 with your host David McIntosh. This week my guest is a fitness legend, all for a good cause, it's Mr. Scott Britton, the founder of Battle Cancer. He's also a Nike sponsored trainer and CrossFit athlete, he was also a previous detective... And the UK police force, Scott has raised over 4 million for cancer with his international crossfit events and has partnered with Nike, Whoop, Knockle, and more. He's even featured on the cover of Men's Health. But it was not always like this, it's not where it started, that's for sure. Scott was born in an abusive, poverty-ridden household. He began his life between Glasgow and Salford, but he recognised that he needed to improve his chances of a better quality of life, so he joined the police force after studying. He worked his way to senior detective roles, often working covertly and anonymously on some of the UK's most heinous crimes including child sexual offences. But in 2017, in a pursuit to appease his itch for fitness, common good and entrepreneurialism, he founded Battle Cancer with the goal of creating a community that uses fitness to support cancer survivors, patients and their families. This is a really amazing episode. What an origin story. Thank you, Scott, for coming on. And of course, before we get into this week's episode, I need to give a huge thank you to the bros over at Vibe, Rory and Gordon for sponsoring yet another episode. They've been sponsoring kind of hybrid episodes of entrepreneurialism and fitness. And I think that's very atoned to their kind of target demographic or the kind of demographic that would really enjoy Vibe. If you're looking for a delicious and convenient way to stay fueled throughout the day, if you're a busy professional, then look no further than Vibe, the meal replacement brand that's taken the world by storm. I have been using it every single day, as you've seen from the Instagram stories. It takes me less than 30 seconds to prepare and gets me like 400 calories worth of nutrient-dense ingredients. I get to absorb the 26 vitamins, omega oils and nootropics, and it contributes to my protein target. Look no further than Vibe. You can enjoy this using my code DMAC for 15% off. You can enjoy it for no less than, I think, £2 a meal, honestly. You can't get a ready-made meal or McDonald's for that, but you're covering all your vital vitamins and your protein intake with this. Whether you're looking to maintain a healthy weight, build muscle, or even lose fat, simply fill your body with Vibe. They have you covered. They even have a subscription service so you can have your favorite flavors delivered right to your door. I get the chocolate one on a very regular basis. So why wait? Try VABY today and discover their delicious and convenient way to stay fueled throughout the day. Visit vABY.co.uk to learn more and place your order using DMAC for 15% off. It would do the podcast such a great support if you were to use this code and back that brand and back me. You know, I'm a very transparent authentic person and i wouldn't promote this brand if i didn't believe in them and if i didn't use it myself honestly if you're a busy person which i su- assume you are if you're on this track to self development i can imagine you're a very productive person baby will have you covered use dmac for 15% off thank you again VB, for sponsoring this episode and as the listeners of this show if you're looking for a further way to support this podcast say you've already bought your VB. well the low hanging fruit would be to share this podcast with people just like you send it into a team's chat at work or your mate's group chat, or send it to someone that might be inspired by this episode. It would mean the world. Scott Britton welcome to the Development by David podcast. How are you?
1: Hi, David. Very nice to speak to you. Apologies. I need to start with apologies. We've been, I've, been, uh, I've been running away from you for a very long time, but it's not been on purpose, I promise.
0: It's fine. Most people do, Scott. And most people do. Uh no, I, I know you're so tight for time today and I know how hectic your life has been today. Can I start off by asking what the day in the life of Scott Brenn looks like these days?
1: Yeah, um, and this is all great. You know, like it's um I always preface this with I wouldn't it's once on my choosing. Too, i wouldn't change it for anything else um but uh, particularly at the moment i've got a number of things that i'm just jumping at a really tight time so kind of a, a day in a life is waking up pretty early um managing to at least be outside for a little bit which i think is really key for most people if you can like even if it's 10 minutes whatever but having a having a puppy means we get to go out where i live is in devon so it's by the countryside so there's no excuse to not get out super early walk the dog just have a little bit of moment with the real world before you jump into your phone and your email and everything else um, and then I'll come to the gym so I own a gym it's about an hour away from where I live so if I'm not travelling and I am travelling quite a bit at the minute uh, but if I'm not travelling I'll head to the gym get my first session done so it's just about two, two and a half hours I'll then work through most of the day until the afternoon I have another session of training which is about an hour and a half and then at the minute and this is not the way to live your life but I'll end up working through till probably about eight o'clock and then about an hour drive back home, and then anything else like we'll try and eat, have some type of wind down, and get ready to wake up again at six. But um, so it's it's not the optimal, but it's uh, it's it's what it is at the minute.
0: But it's great. It sounds like you really kind of like front load your day with stuff for you, so you can be at service for others for the rest of the day. I really like that.
1: Yeah I mean it, it's really hard and, and one of the things I've learned over the past few years is about the, is is time and where you can put it and the impact of having it and it's it's really difficult so you know i, I run a gym I own a gym I help run that <clears throat> I'm not running it day to day but I help run that we own a charity which helps over 20 locations in eight different countries we have an events company which has got 13 events in seven different countries I am contractually with Nike so I'm a Nike sort of global uh, coach and athlete so I'm often going quite around so hence next week I'm going over to Amsterdam for a day to come back um, so there's, there's a few things to juggle to maintain them because you want to keep doing things correctly like you don't want to start something with great intention and then not have it deliver where you want it to so trying to be a lot more uh, like structured and sort of where I have what time because ultimately it's not myself that I'll end up suffering we might say it'll be other people um, that we're trying to do something for. So I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm getting a little bit better. Um, hence the reason I've been running away. And I'm really, really sorry because this is important and you've been doing some amazing stuff. I've listened to the phenomenal
0: people you, you've had on. Oh, thanks, Scott. And just hearing the snapshot of the day in the life of you now, that must sound or seem worlds apart to that of like teenage Scott. And if you listen to the podcast, you know the kind of style of it is to take Um, that gets back to their formative years. Um, Could we speak about your origin stories and what that looked like between Glasgow and Salford?
1: Yeah, um, very weird, very almost like a, a separate person, I think, particularly sort of looking now, I always kind of see my life in three different bits. And it was kind of like childhood, police years and then like now, so sort of kind of fit it into three. Um, yeah, growing up was, it just, it wasn't great. Vast majority of people don't have fantastic upbringing. So this isn't like a boo-hoo sob story, you know, there's so many people who either A, do tell people about it or B, people who have significant impacts happen to them when the kids and they, you know, they carry it for the rest of life and you would never know. So there's a lot of people, but I had a particularly abusive mum and dad, they split, but then particularly still with my mum. My dad was Scottish, so I grew up a lot in Glasgow, uh, and then my mum was from Manchester so grew up a lot in Manchester so uh, as a very young kid kind of had this hybrid mank glaswegian accent that was ripped in Glasgow ripped in Manchester so either way you didn't kind of exist in two and they're two places with quite strong identities um, so you had to, So very early, I kind of had to learn. Okay, when well, I'm in Glasgow, I'm going to hammer up a wee bit, you know. And then if I'm in Manchester, I've got somewhere more Manc. Um So it was it was kind of learning that um, and learning to do with unpredictability. So unpredictability from a moment And dad is is you know you you as a kid kind of learn that. And then I got to the age of about sixteen and took the only decision that I was going to leave. And, and it was the best thing I'd ever do in my life was to kind of remove. And that's something I've always done kind of going forward is I've been very good at looking at when something needs to be removed. And if you, the longer you kind of stew with that decision, even the harder it gets or the longer the impact takes. So yeah, I was effectively homeless for a couple of years, like literally homeless, but then also would bounce to different places. Um, but luckily I was reasonably academic. I was reasonably sporty by the time I was in, in high school going to college so that helps quite significantly to get into accommodation go through college go through uni but worked full time pretty much through through those so these days have been prepped you know i used to work early morning shifts from a to do deliveries at a retail place and then i would do evening shifts around university like up until sort of midnight of another kind of delivery retail place so it was it was always like you would work Learn, work, kind of keep that 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 going. Um, so yeah, I think growing up taught me to deal with unpredictability. Taught me how to make like decisions, but then also taught me that you you're gonna have to work hard. Like if you want to affect change, if it's change for yourself or it's change for other people, it, it doesn't come particularly easy unless you happen to win the lottery. But uh, that ain't gonna be happening for me, I imagine, anytime soon.
0: When you made that decision to make the move and go off on your own and fend for yourself at 16 or 17, was there a specific moment that caused that or was there a stroke of inspiration that you received to go off and do that? Do you, do you remember that uh, at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I think it was just an accumulation of so many times where I was in a particular situation with that wasn't healthy and, and even at a young age I could tell that I kind of had two routes and if I stayed in one route, where I was going to stay was on council estates, with a really abusive family situation that would just continue, both like kind of mentally abusive and then like physically when my father had left that physical side had gone, but the mental side existed. And then also just seeing not a lot of opportunity. So particularly kind of being limited in terms of, oh, you'll only ever get to X or only you'll ever get to Y and you know, where you're from and, and what you're made of will only will only allow you to retain a certain thing. Um, And I think it was just an accumulation. And then one day I was like, that's enough. Like, I have to make this decision at this point. And I think when you're kind of 16, 17, there's a lot of pressure put on people in terms of making decisions from an education standpoint, from a work standpoint, you know, that that can affect the rest of your life. So it was kind of a key time. And I think the more I was learning was, if I don't do this now, it's either going to get harder to do or, or I'm never going to do it um and you know I'm not a particularly I'm not religious but and I kind of feel like I'm here once so I uh, you know I think that was a big driver for me of like right well I'm here once I've got one shot like let's just let's just try and do it my own way instead of existing in a cycle like you know my my, my father's pe- like family my mother's family none of them had been to university before none of them had kind of had like that secondary tier income work as cool. in like you know a, above sort of below national sort of minimum wage nothing had happened from that certainly nobody was entrepreneurial nobody had any significant want to do anything and everybody was very self-centered and i think that's you know but in one way i'm really glad of those early years because i think that they they taught me some really valuable lessons that um thankfully mean i've got a much much better life albeit busy one a much better life now
0: do you ever dig back into that period of time when you're looking for motivation or inspiration to get through the long days or the, the travel abroad or the difficult conversations that you might find yourself in as a as a director of uh, cancer. I, I, don't, I don't think for inspiration
1: like I I actually most of those those kind of times and days are like they've, they've they've existed but they've, they've, they've finished they've gone um, I think motivation for me is is around more the impact and people that uh, now with me so people that impact me and people that I impact I think they are more motivation to be honest than, than things that have happened I think up until sort of early 20s mid-20s there was a um i oh, like F you I'm going to show you I'll show you what I can do I'll be better than this I'll be better than anything that's ever come but ultimately it's not that's not from a good place and, and whilst it is a fuel to a fire that fuel can burn very quickly and I know some people have done wonderful things around that mentality, but I think long term it's not it's not healthy and it won't allow you to grow. Um, you know, and as a suggestion for someone if you ever get a chance to get them on the podcast, there's a guy called Johnny Payne, who's uh like a, a long distance S and C. He's literally over in the Arctic at the minute doing a ultra marathon across the Arctic. He grew up in Scotland, very similar mindset up until his early twenties that he was like, Yeah, well sod everyone, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you. And it and it, it's it's fueled more from particularly anger, you know, trying to get one up on somebody. And ultimately, it it doesn't. So I think once you learn, oh, my actions can impact other people and being really gracious and aware of the people that are impacting me on a daily basis, that's way more motivation. And that motivation lasts for a long time where the angry stuff can can go pretty quickly.
0: I love the shout out to Johnny Payne, one of my best mates, who's also a Glaswegian podcaster, hosted him about a month ago. And his story was in the... Um, so I might need to steal steal them off, my, my friend soon, as a guest appearance. Uh, but I really love that sentiment. I think I, I come from a very, very similar background, despite being just in the West Coast of Scotland, a very similar upbringing. And I escaped that kind of using that fuel for your fire era quite early on as well. And what I realized was when you do finally prove whoever you're trying to prove, you don't really feel it. You're doing it for the the mm-hmm. benefit of other people. Um, I love yeah. this quote. It's like, life is for itself not for a spectacle for others um, and recently with this podcast I'm doing this in service of other people yes it strokes my ego when I get to speak to amazing people like you and and, and it go full circular with it but um, in essence it is for other people and I'm really glad that you've escaped that in your 20s and I've had the opportunity to do that as well. Yeah you know
1: and not, not to kind of harp too much but we've obviously got a mutual friend now we connected with, with with Ben Lucas and Ben said there was a lot of parallels, but also spoke about, you know, and this is something that you know I, I've not been able to do, that your day-to-day job, apart from obviously going to be a comedian, um, is that you work in this insanely class-structured job, you know, and it, and it has been for a very long time, and, and to try and break through to that is, is really difficult. So, that, so the fact clearly of whatever you did, whatever you decided to do, however you used what you had, you, you've managed to break into not just something you know, like my, my like the fitness stuff is kind of easy. Like, there's not class-based or financial structure that that you can break through. There's a lot of stuff, and I'm not demeaning it, but you know, you you kind of had to take on the ones whose dads, dads, dads was ex-directors and CEOs, and they have all gone to eat, and they have all shook hands in a funny way at the same boys' school. Like, you know, you have had to kind of break around. So, I, I think it's really interesting that when you do decide to have your own internal driver, what what you're capable of. And one of the things I said to said to Ben was, I am not in financial word and I'll apologise if any of your listeners are. But the tenacity that's shown from people from a particular working class background where you haven't had things, where you've had to work very hard for what you get and the removal of things can be very quick. So you can get something and you can have it taken away from you just as fast as you can get it. To be able to kind of compete against people who've always had trust fund of mum and dad or always been able to bounce back to something I think is 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 truly is is a big, big thing. So um, don't just go bigging me up. There's obviously a lot of amazing stuff that you've done.
0: Scott, I'm blushing. But if I were to reflect on that, you went into the police force a very well-respected a uh, job, salaried. At the, <laughs> At the time it was. At the time it was. <laughs> Not so much now. But then you left into the world of entrepreneurialism, which is the complete opposite, where you can have the rug pulled away from your feet. So, soon. how did did your background, the fragility of your background, ever affect your risk appetite for entrepreneurialism? I think I was always an,
1: from the minute I stepped out of my house, I was an entrepreneur. I, like I, I had to do stuff. Like I had to go out and make something. Whether making something was working two or three jobs, whether making something was going to try and find a qualification to alter your status within how people see you from a, you know, a future work perspective because it doesn't really matter what degree that you do almost these days unless it's a very specific route. It's almost like you have to obtain a degree for a certain level of pay structure to, to be able to look at you and, and take it seriously. So I think I was always entrepreneurial in the fact that I, you know if you work for a giant company, there's there's a sense of big giant companies can fail. Don't get me wrong, but it, the failure is less removed from your hand. Where the failure for me was always very close in my hand. If I didn't work, I didn't have enough money to live somewhere. I didn't live somewhere, you know. If, if I didn't have enough money to eat, I didn't there was there was that continual thing so i think that was that was always in there a little bit but you're right the police is was very secure pension you basically can't get fired unless you do something horrendous you can be sort of worst people i've ever seen at their job continue to exist in the police force which is one of the reasons why i left but i think that the the risk had always been there so it, it wasn't a new risk in terms of that i think it's shifted now because now people are responsible, their livelihoods are responsible to my decision. It's not just mine. Having staff, I think that's when the, the real switch changes.
0: Can I ask about your 13 year long career in the police force? Um sure. from, from what I've heard, it well, was I can quite tell an incredible okay. journey.
1: Well, there's Which, some stuff I can't tell you, but there's, there's plenty I'm sure I can.
0: <laughs> could you detail the, the roadmap of what your career looked like over the 13 years?
1: Yeah, so I joined quite early. So I joined pretty much straight about a year or two after university. But um there was this shows how old well I'm getting, this was the last time that Labour were in power and they transitioned through to the conservatives. So what happened was when the conservatives came through, they Freeze freeze free public spending so there was no new police officers for about two and a half years Um so when I applied not like now there was uh, there was 50 spots in GMP so Greater Manchester Police um, and there was over 8,000 people that applied so it was it was hard you know every single person who I joined with was the first police officer in two and a half years in Greater Manchester which is a huge area massive issues with crime economic like differences um so I joined pretty quick um within the first year I did my sergeant's exam past that within the first like six months after that I'd done my sergeant my second sergeant's exam which is like a role play interaction one so I was ready to be a sergeant but I very quickly went into non-uniform policing so uh particularly working in vulnerabilities so uh, child sexual exploitation, surveillance, modern day slavery, human trafficking, I didn't look, I still don't look, like I was in the police, so there was an advantage to that. And obviously my background, I didn't have any family, so there's an advantage to that when you're dealing with really serious criminals, there's there's no point where people can find out necessarily who you actually are or what you actually were doing, and, and the risk to your wider family is reduced when you don't really have a family. So you, you're almost, I was almost moulded into a perfect like candidate for the type of work that I went into, um, and then a succession of a couple of years doing that. Then became a detective, then very quickly about six months after that became a detective sergeant, and then just worked on some of the maddest stuff I think I'll ever probably see uh, from, from from there. But it was reasonably quick, so I was a I was a DA, I was one of the youngest like DSs, so detective sergeants that GMP had ever had, um, and it was a lot of kicking off a lot of getting people to try and recognize you a lot of asking people hey can I come and do this job with you it it took a lot of that because you're going against people who've been in for years and the police is very structured on how much service you've done excuse me not what can you do but more how long have you been here um which I'm hoping is changing and you know certainly in the private sector it's a little bit different
0: Given that a lot of your role had to be anonymized and under aliases and you kind of wore a fake identity for a lot of that, now that you're so in the public domain and with millions, hundreds of thousands of followers and views on you all the time, does the work that you previously worked on, could could that come back to haunt you now that you're so, um, so publicly available?
1: Uh, I don't think so.
0: I mean, I'm not trying to sound
1: tough, but most of the death threats, most of the attempts at my life, all that stuff happened when I was in the cops. So it's kind of been there and done that. I think most most of that, you know, there's, there's people that blame me for various things that they did, but it does it's not me. It, they blame me as the police. So I was a police officer, you know, put someone away for 20 odd years, for the single most biggest online sexual offences. And his wife will hate me till the day I die I'm sure she will because she couldn't deal with the process of facing what she had to face of what her husband had done and you know there's people who unfortunately took their own lives during investigations that I had and been through all kinds of you know uh, reviews from independent police commission to uh, coroners but ultimately it was decisions that they took because of their actions it was nothing that we did you know take me out put somebody else in and it would have been exactly the same outcome for so many different things so I I don't think so I mean the, the people that are pissed off, I've already pissed off. I'm not pissing them off anymore. <laughs> so I, I could, It was. it's a bit different. When you're, there's a thing called Police Criminal evidence Act, when you're taking £2 million off somebody, at the time, they want to kill you. Now it's, it's done. So I, I feel that, you know, touch wood, <laughs> most of the time I'm all right. And I know nothing's ever come up, to be honest. The only thing I get now and again is some quite nice stuff from people who used to be in the police forces that I were in, um, particularly the mental health groups because we talk a lot about how we use fitness for, for mental health um, and, and that's that's probably about it. So I think, you know, I, I'm not James Bond. I, I, I never did anything that much that I've got Blofeld after me for 10 years. So I, I think I'm all right. Uh,
0: that's reassuring to hear, Scott. When you left the police force and... Then- went into the event space was there almost like a shift in identity especially because you had to use an alias and you were uh, uh, anonymized for a lot of your career was there a, like a kind of total mindset shift between your characters or your identity between the two the two roles or were you always just got
1: yeah no that's a really good question um not of course it was. So you you get very good at putting on different like faces. So I would have a you know police face. I would have a home face. I would have a going out you know to eat face because you, you had to because it would allow you to deal with. And I was always very good at dealing with particular the 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 more the risk and the more the stress, the calmer I got. So I'd get really annoyed by trivial things. So some geezer was doing this with his foot like on the train the other day for about five hours that drove me wild but i can follow a terrorist suspect or i can you know have somebody you know pull a knife to my neck and stuff and i'll be even calmer it's weird i don't know how it works like that And um, so the, but it was the different masks that you put on in the different places i think the biggest thing i had to learn was that to grow like battle cancer and what we wanted to do it needed to have a mouth and it needed to have a person and i found it very difficult until we started working with pr companies i was like hey like how is this just not good news? Like, How can we not just talk about what the events do or the people in the events to try and make something within the media or to try and get attention? It had to be through a person. And that took me probably about a good 18 months to two years to be able to – it was never difficult to speak to groups or, or to lead it because I so, when you're passionate about something, it comes with ease. It's not skill, it's, it's just passion. But I, I think to be able to kind of put yourself forward um, was not – in my nature of the past part of my career it was you know that was pretty tricky um but it, it was a decision I was like hey I've, I've got to do this because if I don't what we want to do will never happen um, and it's it, it then gets okay and it gets like a bit easier every time and then like I say I almost see it as this is a completely different me now even the way I'm talking to you would be completely different if this was you know five years ago it would be I probably wouldn't even be on it so <laughs> it's, it's a very different <laughs> process
0: so, where was the seed of battle cancer planted? How did how did that begin, and where are we now?
1: Um, I mean, I'd like to say that it was all a plan that I'd had and executed absolutely perfectly to to, to exactly where we're at, I mean, and it wasn't. It was I was always driven by wanting to just do something to make an impact. There was a particular thing that happened in the police where very early. I created a solution to a problem and I was told that it wouldn't work because I wasn't high enough of a rank um so very politically and that that stuck with me and it gave me a big drive of being like I don't ever want to not be able to impact or help people because of a system or a structure that says no um so I was like hey you know this is really easy I know the world of strength sports at the time so I was competing in powerlifting so I was world and European champion powerlifter um but but powerlifting wasn't able to be brought to masses i couldn't i couldn't get three thousand people to do it logistically as a sport as a concept and it also whilst well, it's a wonderful sport and i'm grateful of it it doesn't allow scalability it doesn't really allow inclusivity it's, it's very difficult to do that where i saw functional fitness so your boot camp style stuff f45s crossfit like um, that was something where i was like okay if we can harness that bring people together but but flip so that actually the physical output is not the sole reason that they do it and not the sole outcome if we can make it that it's fundraising and we can reward people with points for what they fundraise we can we can change and shift the way that people see competition and challenges um so year one was probably on the face of it an absolute shit show but it went well from the front end and then we we, we grew every year and you know there's a, a podcast that i, that I love <clears throat> called how i built this and, and the guy always says you know is it hard work or is it luck and and it's you see, that there's a succession of moments where when you're working hard when those moments arrive you grab those moments and, and that's how battle has got to the point where we're at and we're still so early you know we've we've got 13 events but it's so hard to to put them on you know we've we as a business we've got loads of things on the outside that look wonderful you know partnered with nike we've got all these uh, partnered with whoop we have like you know we've fundraised 1.2 odd million last year but it's it's the beginnings and it's still really small and you see that when you look at the numbers of people that go and do other events and you look at you see the 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 problem of fundraising, the problem of helping people who've finished their cancer treatment. The numbers are astronomical, so the numbers that we touch are still tiny. So it's it's still a big ongoing problem, but we've got to where we've got to by just constantly Saying yes to stuff, constantly jumping when someone says jump, you know, kind of punching above our weight all the time. And I kind of like that. I kind of like the Rocky story. I, I always think that's, that's a little bit inspiring to people, hopefully.
0: Marine saying that you've had like Matt Damon and Michael Fassbender uh, at your events as well.
1: Not at the events, no. (laughs) That'll be quite good. Now, a very dear friend of mine um, is the stunt double for... um, What's he called? Chris Hemsworth. So he's been... Chris is responsible for past fifteen years, so he's been in absolutely everything. You see, Chris Hemsworth doing someone, it's not it's Bobby. Um, so at the time, Bobby had had we'd connected through a, a mutual friend, but we've been through an awful lot of stuff. Recently, I lost someone to cancer, and we were just chatting and kind of reconnected as as individuals. And I said, "Hey, like you know, I I appreciate the world of trying to get someone like Chris Hemsworth, like Matt Damon. There's agents involved, there's agencies involved. There's so much stuff that's so difficult. I was like, but hey, could you just get them to record them saying something to the phone because we need to have a message. It was during COVID. So we couldn't host events. You know, it was insanely difficult. Like it was for everybody around the world, but as an events company who'd paid exorbitant amounts of money, for the year ahead because that's how we kind of have to work it was a really tricky time and, and the videos didn't bring us any money it wasn't money we didn't get anything from it there was no uptick in anything else it was just to say like hey whilst COVID's happening like let's get a message out that cancer is still affecting one in two there's you know a huge number of people that both pass away there's people that survive and are having to live with cancer for the you know the rest of their life so it was really cool to get you know all the Hemsworth brothers Matt Damon huge amount of sports stars. So basically we got one and then someone would pass it on to another and to another and to another and to another and then we got these really cool stuff. Um, so it's something that I think will always be a very positive memory during a weird time in the world.
0: That's epic. And I know that isn't perhaps the biggest highlight or one of the kind of highlights of Battle cancer. Neither is the the Global Tours but for you it seems to be the lobbying that you're doing around... Um, Prescribing cancer survivors with fitness. Why is why is that been so important to you?
1: I think because it's I, I like solving problems and and I like that. So again, everybody says, "Oh, it's amazing what you do." It's like, no, it's it's just really selfish. I really like. Having a problem, and I never can see, probably somewhere on an autistic spectrum, like if I can see that there's a solution, it really annoys me why we're not doing that solution. So the vast majority of the largest, you know, cancer charities in the world, they don't deal with post cancer because because during cancer, cancer treatment, everything else, such takes up such an amount of space. There's nobody that deals with with post cancer. You know, and survival rate going up, which is great. However, also diagnosis rates going up. So you're left with an ever-expanding population of people who will live with cancer for at minimum three years because of the impacts of treatment and and at maximum until the rest of their life, you know, they'll be having uh, various amounts of tests. Cancer will live in the back of their mind. You know, for every time that they feel a bit tired, always oh, is this cancer coming back. Every time that they feel pain, always oh, is this is this a reoccurrence. So it, it's a population that's ignored. And the fitness industry is is made perfectly. We have digital applications. We have streaming to be able to hit every single person who's got a device. You know, we have countless gyms across the world of any kind, be it from a commercial gym, studio gym. So we we almost have these like mini hospitals everywhere. We also have it digitally available. But what we've not done before is we've not proven with true academic resource and review a a system of how to help people train. So, again, kind of just towards the middle bit of COVID, I was like, I'm going to write a program and I'm just going to start. And then what we're going to do from there is I'm going to get doctors to review it and then we'll get results from every single person that comes in and we'll review the results and then we'll move again and we'll reassess and eventually we'll build up evidence and evidence and evidence and we'll change both the narrative From the medical side so that they go oh this is actually really safe it's reduced the amount of time that people have chronic fatigue it's been able to increase their return back to work it's been able to reduce what medication they need to be on post-treatment and And we'll flip sides to the fitness industry as well so we'll say to the fitness industry this is really safe like don't turn someone away from working with them because they've got cancer because here's the data to show that just simplistic movements and the simplistic time zones will be able to help them and you can do that. So that's led to us launching a qualification. So we have an internationally recognized qualification. So I can't fund a location everywhere that somebody would be able and, and would need to have that kind of fitness. But what I can do is I can create a qualification That's literally 200 times cheaper than the closest rivals. So finance doesn't become a problem for anyone. It's available online. We can sell it into major gym chains, which we're doing at the moment, so that every single PT would be available to do it. We create all the the paperwork. We create all the video the system so that somebody has the full confidence to say, yes, I'm going to help you come back into fitness or come into fitness for the first time you know and and that's been the goal and again we're just starting it's you know we've had 500 people through the program that we fund we've just sold probably a thousand plus of the certifications but only in the uk there's a, there's a lot of work to do when you think there's 800 pts in europe we've sold a thousand it's not even close, you know. So we we know that there's a huge amount of work to be done, but it's solving a problem um, because I've, I've learned that, that 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 existence of people is forgotten and we want to rebuild people and build them beyond. And and that ultimately doesn't come from, like the NHS one is pretty rubbish. It's all sitting around, sitting up, standing in a chair. They've told, don't do this, don't do that. Where we're like, hey, let's just try. Let's do this together. Let's, let's try. So again, it's, I think my brain is like, we're not, not happy until we've started to get something going from a problem,
0: Knowing as much as I know you now over these 30 minutes that we've been on recording, I think that will be a continuous life cycle for you, Scott, just problem solving uh, with a layer of a fulfillment all, all over the top. Given that I've only got a couple of minutes with you left, if there is someone who's feeling... Like young Scott at the age of 15, 16, 17, and going through very similar emotions, and you were to have to give him just one hand up instead of a handout, what would that hand up look like?
1: Yeah, again, great question. It's really difficult because I, I often get asked, like, what uh, what's the difference? So, what's the difference between what how I reacted in my situation and how you reacted in your situation so, to a huge amount of people that don't react in that way? And unfortunately you know end up having a very different life path and it's really it's really hard I always try and think about it because it just came internally which well I think it came internally but it you know on, on reflection I don't think it did come internally I, I think it was that there was a number of people who either inadvertently or you know directly showed me a difference and and a lot of that was through sports so that that's particularly one thing that, that move on can help you deal with so much it can help you get rid of anger it can help you deal with really sadness it's, it's a great way to be able to recycle your emotion you know not even thinking oh it's good for muscles it's good for music. in fact just genuinely for your body and your mind it's really helpful i think the biggest single thing is asking for help but it's who you ask i think that's the really key one you know and there's a big message about talking about mental health and I'm going to just preface this with like, it is the single best thing that you can do is, is talking. You have to be very careful who you talk to, and you have to be very careful about who you ask for help. Because like the, the opinion that you may get back could be just as damaging as the situation that you're already in. So I, I think if somebody was in a similar situation to me, one of the things I should have done earlier was gone to people in school. So as in teachers, pastoral care, people who were in those things and said, hey, this is going on at home. I, I need help. And then that would have made a difference. I like immediately would have made a difference. What I did was, I would kind of hint to stuff, and I would have teachers that were good. I would have coaches in terms of weightlifting and training and stuff who kind of knew something and were very good at leading me about what should have been the right way. And you would hear them talk about their families, or you would hear them talk about general life, and you'd be like, huh, that's the opposite of what my dad does. Like, they don't go beating their kids up. Like, well, that's kind of weird. And so, I kind of learned from like what you should do from seeing other people where realistically, I think asking earlier would have been a, a much better thing, but I don't know where the better thing, cause I'm kind of happy where we are, but um, I think that is it, you know, not being afraid to ask and also having the ability to to talk is, is clear, but I think not settling and you'll probably be able to attest for this just if not, if more than me, not being, uh, you know, not being put in a box because everybody around you can put different walls around that box and they can fill you in where actually you can fight out of that box every single time. You know, if somebody said, Oh, you're from Scotland, you're not going to be X, Y, Z at such X, Y firm, or you didn't, your dad didn't used to be a, a, you know, a director or whatever, you know, you've not took that as the answer. You've gone, no, I'm going to go and do it. So stubbornness can be the best superpower you'll ever, ever have of just not being in that box and
0: fighting you, I am. I love that advice. And we spoke about Ben Lucas, our mutual contact, uh, in this call. And that's exactly what I did to him. I cold messaged him, uh, a really right. senior member of staff where I work. And I just cold messaged him about personal development on LinkedIn. And he's mentored me ever since. And he's given me multiple hands Medicine. up, including this one. He introduced me to you. So Scott, this has been really full circle. And I know I've not got much time with you left. But if I were to signpost the audience to you or battle cancer, where's the best place for them to find Find yeah just just if you head
1: over to battlecancer.com you'll find everything there you know we can link we link through to the program there you can see videos of what we've got you can see all our upcoming events um, you know there's, there's blogs that get published on there so you can kind of keep up with us you basically type Battle cancer into most things I've worked very hard on this for the past few years it should take you to the vast majority of stuff that we do um, and then from there you'll kind of see everything else um, and mate it's been really wonderful to speak to you and I'm so sorry that I've been really rubbish at one moving it and two being super short on time i would love to do it again um, i think the way that you ask questions is is really insightful it's really different to the usual kind of questions that that you get asked on things so i can just see your uh, your audience and your impact growing from strength to strength um i think the problem that you're going to have is that at some point you're gonna have more people wanting to talk to you so you're gonna have to do what what i'm doing where it's like Who's first? Who's second? How do I juggle it? Where do we go? But um, but yeah, it's been really wonderful getting the chance to speak to someone who's also been in not the same, but a very echoed position. Um, and I think that comes across in the way that you communicate with your guests. So I'm sure that you'll be knocking on Rogan's door pretty soon.
0: Thank you, Scott. And I'm glad that we could share these insights and lessons to, to the listeners. And for those who are Scottish-based, Battle Cancer's coming to Edinburgh in June so maybe again for our second
1: event yeah yeah it was really nice oh it was it was a mix between Glasgow and Edinburgh because obviously whilst uh, my sperm donor comes from Glasgow I'm still very very big fan of the very very big fan of the city like I love the city Uh, but there's a better venue in Edinburgh at the Orem so I like unfortunately it's going to still be in Edinburgh or if you're from Edinburgh then you know this is perfect but yeah it's not that far it's pretty easy
0: brilliant i'll make sure to pop along for so that scott really 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 do appreciate you coming on the podcast and for the kind words thanks for sparing the time
1: thank you so much david take care mate
0: and that's a wrap of another episode of the development by david podcast with your host david mcintosh and your guest this week scott Britton. remember if you want to support this podcast and head along to VB and get 15% off using the Mac. Again, thank you, Vibe for sponsoring this podcast, and thank you guys for tuning in and making it to the end. Please, please, please do me the biggest favor and give me a five-star review or five-star rating and share this with your friends. Thank you.